Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you had a, a remarkable morning. You're set for even more this afternoon. Welcome to the Beehive. What do I mean by that? Brent and Biz. <laughs> Bee. Um, so, Twitter, Medium, Jelly, uh, Last Minute Travel, Made.com, uh, Founders Forum, Founders Factory, Founders Everything, First Minute uh, Investment. Uh, these are the kinds of businesses that these two men have been engaged in over the last many years. And then there's so many more that they've invested in as angels and investors. We are really privileged today to have uh, these two icons of entrepreneurship with us. And there's another thing. They've collaborated on a project, and I'm very proud that they're collaborating on this project, which is they are both on the advisory board of the Oxford Foundry. And they're doing that to support those of you who are students because regardless of where you come from, whether it's the business school or social sciences or the sciences or humanities, um, they were there to support you before there was even a foundry. Um, and I hope all of you have a chance to come visit the foundry. Uh, it's one of the sessions is going there. Uh, Anna Bakshi up here is our tremendous director of the foundry. And so this project is one that unites all of us because we're all here behind you as student entrepreneurs. With that, I'd like to turn the program over to the bees. Uh, killer bees, Branton Biz. Thank you so much. Cool. Great. Right. Thank you for asking us here. And um, I'm glad I got the easy bit, I think, which is I'm just interviewing Biz, which is super easy because Biz has been described as many things as I think one thing is there's, there's Biz Stone genius is one thing, and then Bizstone, very chatty, is another. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm privileged to have, to have that chance. But I think, look, Peter's given you an, an introduction to Biz. I think um, he's a man who really needs no introduction, as the cliche goes. So I'm not going to use much time to do that. Um, but I think what I'm going to ask as an, as an introduction, because we're at a hallowed academic institution, let's start with that and the fact that you got a scholarship and you dropped out. Now, in, in America... Um, not, it, not to Oxford. Not to Oxford. <laughs> Never <laughs> But I, I wonder sometimes if more people shouldn't drop out. Um, obviously, in America, I think what it is is that it's a wonderful thing. You get your badge of honor by just getting in to some of these Ivy League universities, right? You're Harvard, Sam, you get in. And I think that... In some sense, it's quite similar at Oxford. You, get, you go through this incredibly difficult um, and much more difficult, well done, any of you who are the, the actually at, at the universities as well, because it's so much harder than when I was here. Um, but so for those, but we don't have a culture of that pride of, I got into Oxford and I've dropped out and I've started my thing. Um, why not? And, and did, should more people drop out? Uh, well, I, th I think it's a question more, should more, should more people consider whether or not they're whether or not university is right for them in the first place. In my case, I, uh, I wasn't really even thinking. I just, I, going to university was presented to me as like 13th grade. You know, like you just have to go. And so uh, I remember um, sitting at the guidance counselor's office and it was like the last day to be able to apply to any schools. and. They were, where do you want to go? And I, and I looked at the girl next to me and I said, where are you going? And she said, Northeastern. And I was like, I'm, I would love to go to Northeastern. <laughs> and so I went to Northeastern and I, I got scholarship for Northeastern and then I got a better scholarship, a full, full scholarship for um, excellence in the arts uh, for the University of Massachusetts. But the thing is, I got, um, I got offered a job um, at which everyone who worked there had MFAs and I was thinking to myself well if he's offering if I'm being offered this job and I I can I just aren't I just skipping ahead in life and so I can just apprentice with this guy so that was that was my reasoning there was like it makes more sense than also I was unhappy at the university I wasn't really having a fun time so it made a lot more sense for me to say well wait a minute I'm I'm like fast forwarding five years here so why don't I just take the job. It was a funny story about how I got the job, too, but I don't know if we have time for funny stories. <laughs> we, we do, but um, <laughs> let, let's um, dig into another thing that seems to have been pivotal in your life and is relevant, I think, for here, is mentorship. So you talk a lot about your mentor and the impact he's had on you yeah. 
Um, was that absolutely critical for your life? Other people, how should they think about mentors? Yeah, it was really critical for me. I mean, this is the this is why I dropped out. Um, right, so I will tell the story. So I um, good. I, th I knew I was doing some segue. So <laughs> um, so what happened was I I had gotten this great. It was called the Chancellor Scholarship for Excellence in the Arts, and they they give it to one student per year, and it's a it's a complete four year program, and. Um, and so I was doing that, and then I, w I was also working on the side, moving heavy boxes for this publishing company called Little Brown and Company, which was at the time based on Beacon Hill in Boston, Massachusetts. And this was at a time when the art department, uh, the group of eight or so people who designed the book covers, uh, had just were just switching to desktop publishing. And I had grown up. Um, with uh, my friend, my friend had a, uh, has his father had bought a Mac, and I had grown up trying to figure out how to do art on the Mac, and um, and my school had Macs, uh, and so by the time I was doing this job moving heavy boxes, I was pretty good with Photoshop and Quark Express and, and some of these other programs at the time, and the art department went out to lunch, and I snuck onto the art director's workstation and I designed a cover that hadn't been designed yet because the way they do is they issue these sort of one-pagers about you know what do we what's the title subtitle what should it look like if, if, is there any art you should use etc and I designed a cover and I printed it out and I matted it up and I slipped it in with the others to go off for approval in New York City uh, editorial and sales and then I went back to the boxes and then um, a few days later, uh, the art director, whose name was Steve Snyder, came back and said, he was wondering, he was asking around, who, who designed this cover? And I said, me. And he was like, the box kid. <laughs> and, um, and so he, uh, they picked it. So he, he offered me a job. And, and so I thought, well, you know, it was a little bit of a tough decision, but I, th I decided to drop out of university and take the job because, as, as I said before, all of these other people had you know, gone through university, then gone, gotten their master's in fine arts and were designing book covers, and I was just being offered this job at 19. Yeah. And, um, and so I go, to, I go to work the first day, and I, I knock on his door, even though it's open already, just to be polite, and he beckons me in without saying anything. And I walk over to his desk, and he reaches behind him without even looking and pulls out Pantone color guide. It's a book of swatches of color. Puts it down. Still no no words between us. Starts turning the pages through the reds and into the browns and the lighter sort of mocha colored browns and finds a swatch and tears it out and puts it on the desk and slides it across to me and says, that's how I take my coffee. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, I dropped out of, co I dropped out of the university. I only have a dollar fifty. I'm gonna have to go to Dunkin' Donuts and see if I can. How am I gonna match the color? To the, if I get it wrong, and he could like see the gears spinning in my. And he was like, "What kind of a? Do you think I am?" And um, and he and I was like, "Oh, thank God." And um, and so he turned out to be. We I'm still very close with him. In fact, we, we my wife and I consider he and his wife to be uh, my son's uh, Papa and Bubby, and uh, we joke that he. Um, He's not my uh, biological father, but he's my logical father. Um, he, he likes puns. He's very big on the puns. And, um, and because uh, I grew up with my, without my dad present, but um, Steve was... So Steve, I, and then I, I also like to interview him as... Uh, this is Steve. He's the man who uh, uh, taught me everything he knows. Um, and, um, and he... <laughs> and he uh, so I, what I did was I apprenticed with him, essentially. Um, I, I worked it out later on that he really had no clue how to use the computer. So um, that, w that factored in, I think, heavily. Um, although I did, I did win some design awards for my work. And I was also resented by everyone else in the department, um, which wasn't fun. Uh, because they were like, who's this 19-year-old kid that gets to do all the fun, cool covers? Um, but he taught me a lot about design um, and just design thinking in general. I mean, I, I think everybody should um, 
study design. It's just it's really just a series of um, creative decisions uh, that uh, that you end up with a finished product and. Um, and after about two or three years working with Steve, he had filled my head full of um, the stories of when he had his own studio and he was making all this money and everything. And, I, and uh, so I went off and started my own studio and quickly found out that I couldn't do just book covers. It wasn't enough work. And somebody then, this was the late 90s, somebody came to me and said, uh, well, I had had business cards made and my business cards just said, Biz Stone Professional. Because at that at that point in time, I would do anything, like whatever. So, um, so this guy came to me and said, "We have a five thousand dollar budget. Do you do websites?" And I was like, "Absolutely." <laughs> and um, so I, then I got into doing web stuff. And then my friends who had graduated college went into consulting and were really smart and were thinking, "Why are we telling other people how to run their companies? We should start a company, Biz. You're doing the web stuff. Like we'll start a web company." And I was like, "I am okay." So um, in 1999, we started a, uh, a very early sort of social blogging community, a la LiveJournal, and we were a competitor to Blogger, and um, which got me knowing Evan Williams through through the internet, and I later would go to work at Google with him. But it all started sort of with Steve. Um, if he hadn't uh, brought me into the world of commercial design, and then I started doing. Um, product and web design um, for our, my first startup, and that got me into the so I'm um, sort of got me into being an accidental technologist. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I always thought of myself as an artist, but then uh, I, gu I guess I'm a businessman, but I don't feel like one. <laughs> I never felt like one. Um, so yeah, mentorship I think is huge, and then now I mentor because uh, I got so much out of it. And for me, it's really easy. It's just um, I've made so many mistakes that I know what not to do again. Um, so when these young people ask me, like, what should we do? I, I, I know what to do. And they're like, oh, my, you're so wise. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really wise. I, <laughs> I screwed that up three times in a row. And, um, and now I know that you shouldn't do it. And that's why I seem smart to you. But I'll take it. How do you think about the idea that sort of sometimes you go to audiences like this and you're expected, in some ways in my case, to say to everyone, you should all be entrepreneurs. Um, whereas there's often, I mean, you've also got a great line in your bio, I think, where you said, my first company failed, my second was Twitter, full stop. Um, <laughs> you know, um, which is, a, a, but how, but the fact that that risk of failure is so enormous, and I guess I'll quote the cornerstone investor of the Oxford Foundry, our friend Reid Hoffman, who would say that, yeah, everyone should be an entrepreneur, but I think his caveat is, but you need to have your plan Z, is I think the way he puts it in, your book, in his book, which is your worst case scenario has to be you can still go and live in, that, in your mother's house or whatever it is or somewhere um, that you're not on the streets. Um, but I, you know, I'm curious. Well, I never did have a plan Z. <laughs> right. um, my, my theory was always future biz will figure out whatever current biz is messing up now. <laughs> and I love that guy. He yeah. totally helped me out, and like he's always doing that. Um, and that—that that was my—that I was just like, whatever I do now, he'll figure it out. Um, and he did. And so, uh, but to the question of like, should everyone be an entrepreneur? There's, there's. Well, I think there's a nuance to that because there's, there's entrepreneur and there's entrepreneurial. I mean, and I. People put a lot of, um, you know, people call entrepreneurs heroes quite a bit, like as if they're the only one that built the this big successful juggernaut. And it's really not true. It's the team. It's the it's the team that you put together. And it's and and all of the initial thirty or more people that you hire, they're all very entrepreneurial. They also left maybe. Uh, uh, good job to come do something very risky. Um, and, uh, and so I think you, you sort of widen the definition a little bit. And, um, and to a certain extent, that makes it you know, more widely available. And, and, it, and there's also then, going even further, there's entrepreneurial thinking. Um, even if you're in a, a bigger company, just there's a way of doing things that is you know, you're willing to take that risk. Um, I, there's a, there's a, 
there's something I wrote about in my book, which is when I, um, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but when I was in high school, I wanted to learn how to do this gymnastics move that I saw these girls doing. And they were just, they were um, f standing up this way, and then they were flipping backwards onto their hands and then back onto their feet again. And it looked very graceful, so I tried to do it, and I would just jump up into the air and, and land in a heap on the ground. And I, so I asked the teacher, he, well, he saw me trying over and over to do it, and uh, he said, do you want to know the trick of this? And I said, yes, I want to know there's a trick. I want to know the trick. And he said, you have to fall past the point where you're definitely going to land on your back on the wooden floor. But if you put your hands out in a certain way, and, you'll, and soon as, you, as soon as you feel your fingers touch the floor, you just give a little bit of a kick with your feet, and the momentum of the fall will carry you right through. But you have to overcome the, the, your brain saying, don't fall flat on your back on the floor. Um, but that's the trick. And after I, if, once I did that, it was actually very easy. It, it required very little strength. It just required sort of the fortitude to be able to say, okay, I'm going to fall right on my spine on the wooden floor. And that's kind of, I think, analogous to the, to the entrepreneurial way of thinking. Like, um, if this doesn't work, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really get hurt. <laughs> Is this why I ask you to do it now? No. <laughs> um, and that, I told you the trick. You can do it. Now. We'll, all, we'll all do it. Everyone can do it. Um, thinking about that, uh, the, uh, going back to the early days of, of Twitter and credibility. So one of the things I often preach to entrepreneurs who pitch me is like, just make this pitch credible. Show me that there's something credible in this. Um, and I sort of describe to you how, you know, I, I built the boring business plan for my first company, lastminute.com, uh, having been a consultant, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas you were telling me in the early days of Twitter, it was sort of, there were all sorts of different twists of fate, which, which got you there. But was that, were you a credible team to back? Um, well, maybe. Um, it, th there's something funny about Silicon Valley, and it, it's, if, if anyone's read the book or seen the movie Moneyball, um, it's still kind of like that in Silicon Valley. Like, if you look right, if you look the part, um, then you'll get backed. Or if you've, in our case, um, Evan Williams and I had both been early Google employees. So, oh, if you were at Google before its IPO, you must be geniuses. When really, you know, maybe you just didn't get the job at eBay. Um, <laughs> and, but, you know, and, and a lot of people um, just believed, believed that was true, <laughs> um, believed they were geniuses. But, the, um, but that, you know, that had something to do with it. Like, you, you, would, you were more likely to get funded if you, if you, were, if you had some kind of pedigree um, and and um, and a, a crazy moonshot of an idea, and it was almost we were talking about the differences between sort of the UK and the US in, in this regard, and it was it's almost as if at the time, anyways, it's different now, but it was almost as if if we had put a business plan uh, into the pitch, it would have ruined the pitch. Uh, <laughs> The, the imagined business was much better than any business we would have um, put in. Um, and so we just left that part out. Like, we just said, we just said when, we're, when we have hundreds of millions of um, happy customers, we'll, uh, and we'll roll out our fabulous business plan. And they bought it. Um, who would remind me who was they? Well, at, the first money we raised was from Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures. And, and funnily enough, it, that was um, a New York-based uh, firm. Yeah. And well, Twitter was a, a, a different sort of scenario because we started it and it, we, we raised money after it had started to take off. So it's a different... We built a prototype and then it... it it was mocked for about a year until um, March of 2007 when it started to just go crazy. And then we went out look. I mean, and people were offering us money at that point. So it wasn't as if we had something and we had to convince people. 
um, that it was going to be big. It was already growing by leaps and bounds, and we just we said if you give us money, it'll grow even faster and bigger. So there was a diff there was a it was a different type of situation. Another thing we were talking about earlier is finding is is whether you should launch a business on your own or with complementary people. So you've already oh, yeah. done it with complementary people. Yeah. How how should people think about how to find those complementary people? I mean. I was telling you, I wrote, I did, I wrote this book, and I think in 2014, and um, in the book I explain all of these sort of leaps um, that I made, um, where I dropped out of university, or I grew up on welfare, and um, and I was always in debt because Future Biz was going to get me out of debt. And I, was, I paid my rent with my Visa card, you know, not recommended. And um, and uh, the um, what, were, what, were, what was it? Where were we going with this again? Uh, what were we talking? Um, we were talking about oh, uh, so so crazy crazy leaps. So crazy leaps. Like and, and I and I left Google, and you know, I didn't realize at the time the 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 guy uh, who when I was saying I, I was going to leave Google. He was saying, "So you don't like money," and I was like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, I, of course I, I like money. I, 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 I want money. Uh, I grew up without money. I, uh, you know, he's like, "So you don't like money?" And he just kept saying that. I was like, "Stop saying that!" And I realized what he meant was I was giving up a lot of Google options um, that were could have made me a millionaire. And um, but the reasoning was that. Uh, Evan, Evan William, I went out to work, I went, I moved to California from Boston because I wanted to work with Evan Williams on Blogger at Google. Google had acquired Blogger. Evan Williams had a two-year two term. That was his deal. And... I'm sorry, and remind, he had been your competitor. Yeah, we, had, we were competitors, but I also sort of was intellectually um, in love with him. And <laughs> like, like, I really, everything he was saying, I was like, oh, this is exactly what, the, the same thing I'm thinking. And I, I followed his blog, and, and um, I never stopped to think that possibly the reverse was true, but it was. And so he got me out to Google. And when he left Google, I had to, I went home to my wife, and I was, and I had to ask myself, did I, did we move out here so I could work at Google? Or did we move out here so I could work with Evan? And it was, I said it was because I moved out to work with Evan. Just, just as I had followed Steve Snyder, I, I was now following Evan. And so I decided to leave Google and start another um, startup with Evan, which didn't work out. But um, in a weird way, it turned into Twitter. <laughs> but uh, that, that was the thing, is I, if you can find a a great, a really smart, great person who's also a good person, you should just stick with them no matter what, even if it's giving up. I wasn't even thinking, I was thinking more of what I was gaining than what I was giving up, and that, that's, yeah, I think, that's the way you should think of it, you know? Like, I'm gaining, yeah. I'll gain so much by working with this person who's strong where I'm weak, and um, maybe I'm strong where they're weak, and and it's just a great match, and I'll learn a lot. And so I sort of did that without consciously thinking I was doing that. Yeah. Um, and then the same thing with Jack. You know, I just once I met Jack, I wanted to work with Jack as much as I could, and I wanted to follow Jack, and stuck stuck with Jack. So for me, it's always been about finding the right person, and then like really sticking with them and standing by them at worst possible times and, and that sort of thing. And I couldn't imagine doing anything on my own. You know, I really need, I need someone else to bring me out. Yeah. Um, thinking about in, in venture capital. So you've done a lot of super successful angel investments, Pinterest and Slack and many others. By mistake. <laughs> Um, and then I'm, I'm the, I get lots of entrepreneurs, and you've mentioned a bit about giving away to have more. I think the same argument to a partner applies to whether one wants venture capital. But lots of entrepreneurs I see are, A, quite paranoid about giving up any equity or control. B, have heard some bad stories about venture capitalists, and they're therefore like, oh, I don't want to touch that. Um, how do you think about that dilemma for the entrepreneur? Well, I think it's good to have um, another person checking you. 
for example, when, when we started Medium, um, Medium is a place for writing on the internet and reading great writing. Which um, actually reminds me, it's, got, it's actually done super well. It's got how many hundred million? It's, got it's doing pretty well, and we've, we've decided to not do advertising uh, because it ruins the experience of, of reading on the internet and instead go for the subscription model, and that's, yeah. that's doing pretty well. Um, so uh, when, we were do when we started Medium, you know, Evan at, at that point had, you know, essentially unlimited amounts of money, and he could have funded this entirely himself. And I was arguing with him that, well, you're just going to be the crazy billionaire who sets your own valuation, and you know, at any what whatever you want, and you'll have no one checking you, and yeah. and and you'll have no person who's got also they have access to a whole network of other people who and they can bring that to the table and and you know guide you and and check you and and so eventually I won out and and he raised money for medium even though he he could have funded it himself but it was the right thing to do because you get us you get smart people around the table you get money um but in this case he didn't need the money what he needed was that check. Um, he needed someone to report to. He needed someone to, um, you know, uh, explain his actions and why he was doing these things. Otherwise, he could just do anything he wants, and he does he has no one to answer to. And I didn't think that was the right way to go for him. That makes sense. Um, I'll ask one more question. Then we're going to go to if all of you can be thinking of questions, um, would be great. Um, okay, now I'm sure somebody's going to ask you the tech lash question, so I'll go for a different one, um, which is. Uh, the Oxford Foundry. So we've spoken a little bit about it. Um, but why did you choose to get involved? Uh, well, just because I love Oxford. I mean, I've been coming to Oxford since I think 2005, once a year. So it started with the Silicon Valley comes to Oxford, uh, and I did that for many years. And I met Reid Hoffman. I would never become friends with Reid Hoffman uh, otherwise. And um, and I just got to talk to like a lot of people, a lot of great people. Like we were talking, about, I met Herman Hauser, um, whose first words to me as he sat down at the table next to me were, "So would you would you like to hear the secret of my success?" <laughs> I mean, that was the opening line. He is a modest man, honestly. Um, <laughs> and I was like, "Sure, <laughs> guy," because uh, I I wasn't sure who he, I didn't know who he was. was yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, but it was an interesting story. Anyway. Um, but then I, and then, you know, amazingly, they kept inviting me back, and, um, and I sort of just fell in love with the place, and, uh, and the foundry is just such an exciting, um, it just feels like a startup, you know, it's, we've just been there, we've just had a tour, and it's, it's nearly finished, um, 99% finished, and, um, used to be an old ice factory, and it just, it's got all this charm, and, so I, uh, you know, when Peter um, offered me the chance to be an advisor, um, I, I, I leapt at the opportunity. I just think, um, you know, just it's just a since having not finished university, there's something about coming to Oxford that makes me feel very academic. <laughs> um, that makes me feel like somehow I'm 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 a student. I'm still a student, and. Um, and uh, maybe one day I'll get a diploma. <laughs> I do have a scroll which says I'm a fellow. Ah, yes, of Exeter. So, no, just of all of Oxford. All of Oxford. Yeah. Okay, all of Oxford. Okay, brilliant, brilliant. Um, shall we go to questions? There, there are microphones coming. There are questions. We've got one over there and one over there. Questions. So one and then oh, oh, the mics first here, and then we we'll go there. So why don't we go there? And then they don't just have to be for me. They could be for Brent. Me? Oh, hi. Okay. Hi. Um, is your vision for Medium... Sorry, is Medium today what your vision for Medium was back in the day? And if they're quite different, I'd love to hear kind of the evolution of that thinking. Yeah, the, well, the vision for Medium originally, which Ev kind of chucked out, but came around to later thinking it was his idea, was... Um, I jokingly called it text tube. I said, let's just copy YouTube, and, except for text. And, um, and I said, because right now, when somebody wants to write on the internet, they, they have to start a blog. And 
if they want to just write an op-ed for the internet and they don't want they don't want the overhead of saying like okay I'm going to start this thing and I have to keep writing to it even though I don't have anything to say if they just want to write one thing and post it there's there was nowhere really to go for that so I said why don't we just do that and um, and then what we'll do is we'll recommend articles by other people um, just like YouTube does that you might want to read because you read this one and um, it was a really simple idea um, and I wanted to design a writing tool uh, that was like it scratched sort of every itch that I had um, I have this weird quirk where all of my paragraphs are always the same number of lines and so I wanted um, the tool to look exactly like what it was going to look like when you published it so I could make sure that they were all the same and um, and I just I, I copied a lot of the features of the best writing tools that I like and so it did it is today exactly um, what we planned it to be and um, and we're we're happy with it I mean it's you know it's not one of those companies that's like the sexiest company in Silicon Valley and you know there's two million pe people signing up a day and it's a, it's a rocket ship and and it's brand new and it's been around a while it's doing well it's doing what it's supposed to do and people are um, subscribing to it but and it and it it promises to be a healthy business um, the goal is to get maybe a, a hundred million people paying ten dollars a month and that'll be a great business um, but uh, we, we like that business plan yeah, yeah. so um, so yeah, it's it's it is it. We didn't we didn't um, true to form. I mean, we we meandered and we changed it around a lot, and we but we ended up back at the back where we started. Right. So there's a question over there. Twitter and other social media have become conduits for a, a lot of propaganda and fake news. Um, are you worried that you're playing a part in something that's subverting our institutions and democracy around the world? Yes, uh, I am. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, I've been back at Twitter full-time for 10 months now. Uh, I'm calling, I, I was there for six, the first six years, and then I left and I started Medium and Jelly and sold Jelly to Pinterest and then had nothing to do and was asked to come back to Twitter. I like to call that my sabbatical, um, my long sabbatical. But uh, what I realized when I got back um, to Twitter was that we were woefully unequipped for the world today. We, we had tools for detecting and remediating uh, spam and malware, and people could flag content that was offensive or against the rules. But we didn't have tools for um, network state-sponsored graphs within our graph that organized off the network and came on on the network with an agenda, and and played nice for several years, sidling up to influential people, and then when something happened, swung into their agenda. We we didn't have the tools for this, and um, the the single. Uh, the, my single biggest fear, and I think the only real thing that could bring Twitter down, is if Twitter loses its credibility. And Twitter, to me, is the world's most influential news organization. Um, we define it as what's happening in the world and what people are talking about, but that's news. Uh, we just don't call it news because advertisers, it turns out, don't like to advertise on news. They prefer the term social media. So. Um, so yes, we, we have, despite, uh, despite efforts to the contrary, over the past year we've, um, we've we, we declared it an abuse emergency and we, uh, we just increased uh, you know, tools for people uh, to use to um, make it feel safer for them. We increased uh, you know, detection or remediation of automated uh, systems on, across the graph, but um, but we realized we really were just treating symptoms of a bigger root, root problem 
And we realized we just didn't know. We just didn't have the tools and didn't know how to address these types of things that you're talking about. And so we actually, last week, um, we published a, a long thread. It was, it was to be a blog post that I had written, but we decided that Jack should post it as a, a Twitter thread. And in it, we just say, look, we, we weren't ready for this stuff. We don't have the tools to catch these misinformation campaigns. But um, we are going to uh, work with, uh, we are working now with MIT Media Lab and Cortico on trying to focus on how do you detect the health of the public conversation. Um, one of the things I did when I got back to Twitter was created a purpose statement for Twitter. We didn't have a, we never actually had a purpose statement. And so I wrote, the purpose of Twitter is to inform uh, the world and serve um, the public conversation. And if we're to serve the public conversation, I think it's, you know, like I said before, we were, we were kind of operating on the policies of the golden age of Twitter uh, in the first five years when we didn't really have these types of problems. And we were still operating under those principles when I, when I came back. And, um, and now it's time, you know, we can't just, you know, wipe our hands and say, like, it's a self-policing system, f free speech, it'll, it'll all work itself out. Um, that doesn't work, it turns out. And so we do have some responsibility to, um, to guide uh, the public conversation, to, to try to find out what are the indicators of health of the public conversation, and to um, try to make this public conversation healthy, um, while still maintaining a very, very pro-free speech uh, stance. But I think gone are the days of saying that we, it's a platform and we're not, we're not responsible for what happens on it. Um, so the answer to, that was a long, that was a long answer, but um, yes, I do worry that people use um, Twitter for misinformation campaigns, because they do. Um, pe Twitter reinforces people's biases. I mean, it, it does all of these things. But we know that it does, which is, which is a good thing, and we are addressing it, which is a good thing. And we're addressing it in a way that holds us accountable. We're doing it in public, and we hope to come up with indicators for public health of the public conversation that other institutions that serve the public conversation can also use. Um, it's not going to be intellectual property. Um, so yeah, there's a responsibility. There's a responsibility here that didn't that we didn't feel existed five years ago, but I think now there is a responsibility to run this platform. And do you think Facebook's got that memo now as well? Uh, I, I don't know um, what, I don't know. I don't know about Facebook because I don't work there, but... Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't really, I'm not sure. <laughs> I wonder if they've been... If they've been slow to it and they've now got it, but um, it's, it's but I think debate it's, that it's, too. It's important to own up to the fact that you know these things go on and um, and we're not going to pretend that they don't. Yeah. Sorry, other questions? There's loads. There's one there, and then there's one here, and there's one at the back. So, so I'll go to the back. Yep. Okay. Um, thanks, Biz. So I was wondering, what do you appreciate most about your day to day nowadays? Uh, so what I appreciate most about my day-to-day -day now is that um, as opposed to my first six years at Twitter where they um, had to put up with me because I, was, I started it, um, now that they've asked me back, um, they, ha they listen to me. <laughs> um, and so I've, I've actually, I really appreciate the, the fact that I have... Um, it's real actual power now, and I can, um, they, you know, they asked me to come back because they wanted my opinion and wanted my help, and, and so now I'm saying, well, you asked for this, so I'm going to give it to you, and they're doing the things that I'm saying, which is wonderful, um, so I appreciate that a lot, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just a wonderful, and it's also, I also very much appreciate um, being wanted back. That's, um, 
that I mean, it's it's it feels really good when someone says like, "We need you." You know, um, that's just uh, I think that's probably a universal feeling. Absolutely, human. Um, there was one. Was it? Who's got the mic there? And then. Yeah, um, so you mentioned that design is very important, so I'm just curious, like, how involved are you in terms of design of the products, and what's your personal design philosophy? So, yeah, I designed, I'm a designer, I designed Twitter, I designed Medium, um, and now I don't design so much anymore as maybe um, a creative direction. Um, uh, I'm, I just sort of lost touch with... Uh, what tools the kids are using these days, you know? Um, but, um, but I do, if requested, I don't wanna, I don't wanna step on anyone's toes, but I do um, try to keep the, uh, my, in terms of my philosophy, I try to keep things fun. And because like, I, I'm fond of saying that if you wanna, if you wanna run a, a platform that's capable of allowing people to topple despotic regimes, it also has to support fart jokes. Um, because if you don't have the, the if, you're not, if you don't have the muscle memory of using this thing every day all the time, you know, multiple times a day, then you won't think to use it when something really important happens either. Uh, and so you really have to have um, that, the, the aspect of fun and goofiness in your, in your product and in your product design and in the way that you approach the design work. And I would also say the other, my other design philosophy is just, um, ju just to be as um, s simple as possible. I go for comprehension because, for me, if if I can't figure something out in like a couple of minutes, I bail on it. And um, and I just, you know, I, I always try to make things as as easy as possible, which which they aren't right now for Twitter, but we're working on that. There's one there at the halfway back. But we need a mic. We've got some mics. There's one mic. Great. Uh, good afternoon. First of all, thank you uh, for being here. I'm, I'm a yeah. big fan, so thank you for that. Uh, for, I, I guess I've got two questions. One is, how do you get people like Brett Holman and Beeston to become your mentor? And second one is, how do you go about identify ideas which can tie into opportunities? So what's what's your secret sauce? You 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 know, you founded, the, you guys both, both founded very successful business. How do you go about identifying ideas and turning them into opportunities? Uh, well, so, the first part is, um, I don't know, I mean, like, I'm mentoring uh, these two young men who dropped out of Harvard to start um, a blockchain uh, company called gems.org, and I'm doing that because they emailed me and asked me if I would. So... Um, I guess asking is one way to do it. Um, and then the other thing you talked about, identifying opportunity. And um, one of the things I'm, I learned really early on, and I, and I like to share with people, is that the definition of opportunity is a set of circumstances that make something possible. And I realized that um, you can be the architect of the circumstances. And then, if so, you're, you're first in line to take that opportunity, because you've created it um, from scratch. And so I always like to think of opportunity not as something that you wait, in, you, you wait for and you try to identify, but rather something that you create from scratch by, um, by inventing those circumstances that make something possible. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So quickly, I mean, I think I think one of the reasons, Biz, I'm sure on, on the gems side, it sounds actually one of the reasons why I'm sure, sure you would have backed them or mentored them is also because you can learn from them, right? Yes, if exactly. Doing something what sounds like really interesting. Right. And I didn't know that much about yeah. blockchain, so I wanted to get involved. But yeah. actually, I got involved with them before they were turned into a blockchain company. They were they were doing some computer vision stuff with um, a company called Gifts.com. And then they stumbled upon this idea to recreate Mechanical Turk in a decentralized way and, and paying the uh, workers with cryptocurrency based on Ethereum. And I just thought, well, wow, that's a really good idea. Um, and, 
And so, and I told them, they were like, will you be an advisor to this company too and, and continue to be our mentor? And I was like, I don't really know that much about blockchain. And he said, oh, but you do, because really uh, what we're doing is all about building a community and you know a lot about that. And um, so that sort of sold me on it because I do, I do know about building communities and from scratch and um, getting them going. So just for, for myself, just uh, on mentoring entrepreneurs, I tried, I've tried to work out how to scale it. So that's why we have all these other stuff behind, behind my, what, what I do. So Founders Factory does 42 companies a year. So we have a team of 60 people helping to sort of leverage that up. And then First Minute Capital looks like we're on track to do sort of more than 20 seed deals a year. And then we have Founders Forum and we have Founders of the Future, which is where we promote young entrepreneurs. And then we have Smartup, which is where we are a platform for entrepreneurs to learn from other entrepreneurs. Um, and we have all these, sort of, uh, all these sorts of projects. Um, but I think, for me, the ideas that get me most excited are where somebody's found a pain point in their life. So that's how I found lots of the companies in, 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 in my past. And where um, they've built some credibility and where I think I'm going to learn a lot. And, I just think, and, and where I think I'd work for the person if I was a lot younger. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I always say. I always say be kind to everyone because... Especially in Silicon Valley, you could end up working for the intern you had five years ago. <laughs> it, it's absolutely true. <laughs> Kevin Systrom, who founded Instagram, was my intern at Odeo. Yeah. And I could easily have ended up being a, one of his employees. So yeah. it's entirely possible. Yeah. Cool. So there's one at the back. I don't know where the mics are, but there's a couple back there. And there's a mic here. Great. Thanks. We're going to have to be super quick questions, I think, now. Hi, Biz. Thank you for sharing. Um, I was wondering, uh, kind of returning two topics ago, I know Chamath Palihapitiya recently said that he looks back on his time at Facebook with some regret. Uh, if you could go back five years to the beginning of the glory time of Twitter with the knowledge of what's happened in society recently, what changes would you make if you would make any changes? I would, I would, I would have looked at our policies um, and check them against where the world was headed and asked, asked the tough questions about whether or not we still believe that um, a hands-off freedom of speech approach is the right approach. And if we, if we shouldn't take some responsibility for the platform that we run. Um, it's it's kind of like the, you know, the, the Constitution for America. You know, I don't see why you can't change these things. <laughs> you know, like, just because some people wrote it a long time ago doesn't mean you have to follow it forever. Like, you have to make changes. And so I would have probably said, like, let's look at this and compare it to reality and see, see if they're still matching. Um, because they slowly didn't. And, and there became a very big gap between our policies and what was really going on. And so now we're narrowing that gap. Right. Quickly, have we got some mics? There's one that you're allowed. I could go for it. Okay. Um, so, starting my own company, I'm really interested in organizational health and setting a culture. And so, I'm really interested in you doing that at Twitter, and then what did you learn from that to do that at Medium? And then going back to Twitter, had they continued to implement that culture and organizational health, or had it changed, and how was that for you to come back to it? Yeah. So, my first company was called Zanga.com, spelled with an X. If you have to explain it, it's not good. It's like a joke. It's, if you have to explain it, it's not funny. So a little tip for naming your company. But um, when I started that company, um, my, my friends and co-founders, I wanted to start it in Cambridge, Massachusetts and hire um, young um, uh, um, computer programmers out of MIT. And they were like, no, man, New York City is the coolest. we got to start it there. And so I lost that bet. And we worked out of a um, sweatshop. Um, literally, like, across the hall, it was an actual sweatshop in the garment district. And I didn't like that. And then, and then about a couple of years in, they started hiring their, like, bro consultants. And, uh, and I was like, I don't like this. And I found myself coming back home to my to my would-be wife and um, complaining all the time. And so I quit. 
And I realized later that I was too green to understand that I could have worked to make the culture that I wanted and, and instead of quitting, because I was immediately sorry that I quit. I felt like I was on the wrong side of the screen. So when we started Twitter, I, the, the week that we actually founded Twitter Incorporated, I gave a presentation to the team saying, um, we're going to have a culture here. And I sort of made fun of Google, because Google has this, has this internal saying of, don't be evil. And I always made fun of that, because I was like, you're, you're, you're automatically measuring yourself on a scale of badness. Like, <laughs> we can be really, really bad up to here, uh, but not evil. Like, it's, they're not saying we're going to be good. They're just saying, don't be evil. So, and which, is which is subjective. Um, so I said, we're going to be good. We're going to try to have some impact on the community that we work in. And then you know, not knowing that we were going to be a, a global success uh, you know, later on, a global positive impact. But you know, very specifically laying out, like, we're going to do volunteer work. We're going to do this. We're going to do donations. And I, I, the, it was about eight of us, and I could see that most of the people were, they looked like they were at an elementary school assembly and waiting to, for me to be done talking. Uh, and I realized that when I said we have to treat, um, we have to treat our corporate culture as a product, we, we have to maintain it, we have to um, keep up with it. And I realized the we was me. And so, um, I did that, and um, and we we actually did have very strong um, a culture of doing good at Twitter. My my goal was to have when you walked in the door, you felt like you already you already achieved something, you already were doing something of positive impact in the world, and then by sitting down at your desk and working, you, that was just even more gravy. Um, and that actually um, stuck. When I came back, Twitter for Good, which is, which is, which is inside the organization um, and does a lot, of one, a lot of great stuff around the world, was, was thriving. Um, and in, in many ways, that held the company together. Um, it, uh, it, it really helps with... Um, you know, a great company culture where you're sort of mission aligned with doing good in the world is, you know, all the all the latest statistics and polls will will tell you that um, you attract the better talent, you attract more customers. Customers will switch to your service over another if they know that you're doing that, um, and it helps with attrition and all that sort of stuff. So when I came back, it it did need a bit of a dusting off and a bit of a boost, but um, it, had, it had survived, and, um, it was, and I was proud of that. So, but it is really important to set that tone early and to say that, we're, because a culture is going to form, whether you like it or not, and you can, you can take charge of it and, and groom it and treat it like a product, or you can just let whatever happens, happens, and end up with Uber. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, unfortunately, um, we are out of time, but I'm glad that um, Biz is not ending up with those, is ending up with lots of positive... Well, Uber could turn out great. It yeah, it could turn out exactly. But lo lots of positive things. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank your you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.